Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you, as always, by ZipRecruiter. You know it's not smart? Coming into the office when you're sick. A lot of sick people at the Ringer now. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not blaming anybody. But if you're sick, stay home. That's our rule. You know what else isn't smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Luckily, there's a smart way. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. They find people with the right skills for your job. They actively invite them to apply. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, SeatGeek, as always, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event. Use promo code BS. Yeah, any event, all of them. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. Ringer Podcast Network is loaded with stuff, including a new rewatchables episode that we did. It's Con Air, one of the great action movies of all time. Broke it down with Shea Serrano and Chris Ryan. That is up. We have one more rewatchables coming next week. It is Tombstone is coming uh, probably Christmas Eve. And then speaking of the Ringer Podcast Network, I hope you're checking out all the stuff we have, Ryan Rosillo show, JJ Reddick, One Shining Podcast, Ringer NFL, Ringer NBA, we just a bunch of sports stuff, our Oscars show, uh, TV, The Watch. I We have 25 podcasts. I can't name all of them. But uh, check all those out. And then finally, TheRinger.com. I have a piece coming this week. Yeah. It's an NBA trade value piece. Oh, yeah. And there's a wrinkle this year. I, I, it's going to be a living, breathing list is how it's going to play out. It is going to be updated probably once a month during the season. I wrote a huge intro for it, did all the honorable mention guys, and then laid out the top 55 is how we did this. Did not write about the top 55 guys. I'm going to be doing that next month. I promise. I swear on my kids. Um, but there's more than enough content in this for you today. And then we're trying to hope that, you know, this becomes something we update month to month. It's funny. I almost had this up before Thanksgiving and that list was different than this list. Um, you know, for instance, Luka Doncic, he climbed a couple spots. I'll leave it at that. A couple guys fell out of the top 55. A couple guys I was just horrified by and just cut out of the honorable mention entirely. But I like the idea of the the list ebbing and flowing depending on the month. So anyway, that is on the ringer.com middle of the week. I think it's Wednesday, might be Thursday. I can't remember, but yeah, be on the lookout for that. All right, let's get to Chuck Klosterman. But first, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, it is the end of 2018 or close. We're heading into holiday season. Who better to call than the Ringer's real-life Santa Claus, Chuck Klosterman. Uh, 2018 wrapping up. What are you going to remember about 2018? Hmm, well, Laverne DeFazio just died. Did you see that? Yeah, Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall was like, died. Well, she didn't die a half hour ago, but it was just reported a half hour ago. Yeah, that's a tough one. Although I doubt that will be my singular memory of 2018. Yeah, I don't think um, it will either. 
I don't know. I don't know. What, what will you remember about this year? Oh, I love when you freaking flip thing, it on me. Well, no, it's just that my thing is like, I'll, I finished a book this year. That's probably what I'll remember. I remember more about my own life than the world at large. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I, I think I was thinking more for non-personal stuff. But yeah, I guess you the default is you first remember, you know, things that happen in your own life and some of the places you went, all that stuff. I was thinking more like from, oh, I mean. Well, okay, well, here, here's, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just saying from a political standpoint, I think it's easy to, to, you know, whatever side you're on, you're going to remember 2018 the way you want. But from from like a pop culture side, this really felt like the year that streaming started to kind of overpower everything else. And I, I think that would be one of the first things I remember. The music year was really all over the map in a lot of different ways. And uh, some of the personalities we had either gained steam or lost their minds. And, uh, and why from- do you think, uh, why do you feel like streaming took over this year? I feel like, I mean, I haven't have a, I haven't had a DVD player for like five years. Yeah, I don't have I don't have anywhere like my computer doesn't have a CD drive on it, so I feel like streaming has been sort of dominant for a while now, hasn't it? Yeah, I agree with that. I I just meant more from Netflix is starting to Netflix and Amazon are really just starting to figure it out in a lot of different ways, and some of the stuff Netflix did this year from a hiring standpoint, I was really fascinated by. Like Netflix just said, "Oh, we're competing against Disney." we're just going to take a lot of your best executives and and a lot of the best people who made diversity possible at your company. We're just going to take all of them. We're going to quintuple pay whatever they're making and now we have them. And I've never, I, it was some Game of Thrones shit that, uh, you know, and it, we've heard these r- different rumors and whispers about what they may be up to, that they're building an animation studio. They're taking all this space in Hollywood and it, it just in the last two years, it really seems like them and Amazon specifically, and Apple to some degree too, because Apple's starting to make these content deals too. We're just like, oh, well, you are quite the quite the media insider here. You're I know. Listen, all the business chess moves. I was just going to say, like, I like that on Netflix now. Movies <laughs> that are in theaters are sometimes at home the same day. I like that. Well, that's happening I like too. The Coen Brothers movie, yeah, that like the Coen Brothers movie that was great to watch immediately. Uh, uh, I, I don't, I didn't know about the hire. Um, well, so what's, what's really uh, going on is you're right. Streaming has been around for a few years and they had a lead and they didn't really know how to do with it. And now they're like, you know what we should do is just spend our resources on the best possible people who either create content or can find the people who create content. And we'll do that. Plus we have this algorithm now that over the last five years, we have all this data on what people like to watch and we're going to steer content toward those people. I've talked about in the podcast before, but the, you know, a lot of the movies that you see on Netflix are, you know, in these different kinds of genres, right? There's like these, they have horror movies left and right. They have these movies for teens. They have rom-coms. There's certainly a formula movies about they, all kinds of content about dogs. Like they actually had a documentary series called dogs which was six episodes uh, about my, people uh, their dogs my father-in-law and mother-in-law loved it they were like you've got to watch this yeah It'll make you love dogs more than you. um it's smart so like now like uh like for now are we gonna start saying things like horror horror content and dog content like are we gonna start using content at the end instead of using like movies and and will we just use content now yeah content like, you listen to the new content 
<laughs> it is content may, might be the word of 2018. You're right. It's all, I hear people using it easy. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, I can't wait till the new Radiohead content comes out or whatever. Here's something about uh, 2018. I'm glad, you know, I was glad you texted me a day and asked me and wanted to do this. I, I'm glad you did because something has been bothering me. I feel like very often in this world of podcasting, particularly kind of in the take culture of podcasting, yeah, people make all these takes, right? And then when they when they're proven right, they'll bring it up like fifteen more times in the future. But they don't bring it up when they're wrong. And I just feel like I gotta say, I was totally wrong about Maker Baker Mayfield. Mm. I was just I was completely wrong. The I in retrospect, the idea of moving him to wingback does seem like an insane thing that I thought should happen. Um, we had that conversation. You recall I, we talked about the Tiger Wood book. Yeah. Tiger Woods book, and then we talked about all the quarterbacks coming out, and like I, we were both really down on him, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was just totally wrong about that. It was he was, <laughs> uh, he, although you know, I guess the, uh, I guess you could argue he's only the second best rookie quarterback this year after the guy from Southern Mississippi, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. The uh, I was wrong. I realized it immediately, and and couldn't have backtracked any faster. It just seemed. Crazy to me that he was going to go first. And then you watch him a couple of times and he's still raw. He's a rookie. He's had ups and he's had downs. And I think he had a crazy coaching situation. He doesn't have a lot of weapons, but there's enough there that you can kind of tell. I got to say Darnold, who um, I was lukewarm on and he felt Matthew Stafford to me against the Texans was the first time where uh kind of saw the the ceiling a little bit and you start to wonder what he's going to look like if they actually put real weapons around him, you know? Well, actually, the first game Darnold played against Detroit, it was like, ah, he threw that pick on the first throw and then was great the whole way, the whole rest of the way. It was like, you know, maybe he'll be good, but then he kind of disappeared. In truth, a lot of these rookie quarterbacks have seemed pretty good this year. I mean, in, in different ways. I mean, like, like Josh Allen, he's a really intriguing runner. Yeah. Like I really enjoy watching him run the ball. Really. I never would have guessed that he was that athletic, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, Lamar Jackson, uh, it's odd. They're, they're better with him in there, you know, even though he has some limitations in terms of, of accuracy, not a lot. And he just makes them a much more interesting team. And obviously Mayfield is good. Um, it is by the way, who, who is forgetting? Colin Coward, who I, who I really like, I had heard him maybe five weeks ago talking, four or five weeks ago, talking about Lamar Jackson as fool's gold and Tim Tebow and we did this and it's not going to happen. And then I heard him yesterday on the radio being like, Lamar Jackson's looking good. And I just remembered it because I'd heard two different takes and I've been in that position before where you're just wrong on somebody. But I almost feel like there needs to be a word for these people who have to give takes all the time where they're just, as they're giving the take that uh, crosses off the take they had had four months ago, you just say some word like, uh, yeah, like silver well, nugget. And people just know that you're, you're aware that you screwed this up initially. I don't know what pineapple, whatever. I don't know what the word would be. <laughs> oh, you want a word for the mistaken take? Or yeah. For it's the job itself. Yeah. Instead of a safe word, it's a take word. You're just like, Hey, the, you know, Lamar Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> would be like coward be uh, like Lamar well, Jackson looks awesome pineapple but here's the thing and then he just goes in and he's <laughs> acknowledging that he was wrong and that's it I think that would work 
Yeah, well, I just, I felt like this is, I mean, I'm wrong about lots of things, but I was obviously wrong about this. He looks like he's just, you know, um, uh, and, you know, now I'm, I'm going to be wrong again because I've been talking all year about how I just, like, like, I just do not think Oklahoma is one of the four best teams in the country. I think they should not be in the playoffs. And, and I've said this so many times to so many people now, like, they'll probably beat Alabama. But it just, to me, it doesn't <laughs> seem like they have any hope whatsoever in that game. I, I, you know, they could score 30 points, but they're going to give up 68. If they, it's just that they're, I think the Big 12 is so bizarre now. Yeah. But Murray is a real fun guy to watch, you know, and I guess it's good that he's in the playoffs just to watch him and play at least one more time. I can't remember if we ever talked about this, but I have a buddy, my, my buddy, Steve Bishop, one of my best friends from high school and my friend for more than 30 years at this point, his favorite thing was when somebody was equally had pad potential in two different sports. Like he used to love Ronald Curry the most at any remember Ronald Curry could was the NC quarterback, but could also be the point guard on their basketball team. And we were like so blown away that somebody could do that. Bo Jackson was obviously the, the ultimate, mm-hmm. but it's so rare to have these two guys that are in this fork in the road moment where they could go either way and be really good. Cause it seems like Murray could play baseball if he wanted to and, and be good at it. Um, well, I enjoy he, that. It looks like he's going to play baseball. I mean, yeah. the, the thing is, he is in a little complicated position because he's a quarterback, so it would be real difficult for him to play baseball and then play football the way Bo Jackson did. Right, because you can't. It just he'd miss too much. He'd miss too much. Um, like if he, if he played a different position, and he's you know, and he obviously could play many positions, so maybe he could you know attempt this. There's a lot. I mean, he could be. There's many things he could do well. Um, but I don't see how you could be a quarterback showing up in October. It just doesn't seem possible. It's you know? like a special level of athletic ability when somebody. You know, and I really think like, uh, I remember talking to Abby Wambeck about this once, you know, who ended up being the best striker in the history of U.S. women's soccer and is one of a kind player. But she she could have played any sport. Like if she had just gone toward basketball, she would have been great at basketball. And there's those cert- certain people that are just at a whole other level than anyone else. And then you see it with baseball where, you know, like my son put, is on a travel team and we have these kids on the team who have been playing since they were four but the reality is there's some athlete out there that can just pick up baseball at age 16 and be awesome at it immediately. It's just like final level of athlete. And I always enjoy when somebody has the ability, like it'd be cool if Zion Williamson was also like a scratch golfer and could just be like, Oh yeah. If Zion Williamson played golf, he would revolutionize it, but he's going to do this basketball thing. instead. I like when people have choices at like age 19, like that, at that level. Yeah, you know, it's it's it is like your 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 friend is intrigued by it is it is really cool. Like like in Charlie Ward, I remember when he decided to play in the yeah. NBA. My initial thought was like he's just going to be a shutdown guard because he's going to be so much physically stronger than everyone, based on the fact that he just played football. But um, Char- weird stories. Have you a yeah? Well, I was going to say Charlie is a great example because Charlie didn't he win the Heisman? I think he did. He did. And then he went to the yeah, Knicks and, and was, you know, had, had some moments on the Knicks. He got paid a couple of times. I remember he had one really lucrative contract. I think he, that played, was, ten, I think he played 10 years. 
Yeah. yeah. And I remember he had a contract that was expensive and tough to trade at one point. So it was probably the right move. Like if he had played football, I don't know. I don't know how well he would have done. Maybe he would have been a backup. Maybe he could have been a starter on a lousy team or whatever, but the basketball thing was the right move. Yeah. Anyway, I interrupted you. Oh, have, uh, I went to the, uh, went to the Blazers and, uh, uh, Raptors the other night. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of watching the Blazers a little bit cause I'm here. Do you know the backstory on how this guy, Joseph Norkic got into the NBA? Yeah. Yusuf Nurkic. Yes. Yeah. You know how, he, how, how he, how it's amazing. That story's amazing. Why don't you tell the story? Cause he's the, he's the world's most interesting NBA player. Well, okay, this, I, and if I get anything wrong, I kind of heard this story. I kind of like half heard it, and I was like, what? And I, and so he's like from like, you know, Bosnia or whatever. And apparently there was this guy in the United States who wanted to like, I don't know, be an agent or something. And he's just kind of reading on the internet. And he reads this story about this small Bosnian town that has a huge cop. Like the town has a seven foot cop. Right. So this guy calls the cop and says, Hey, this is a weird question. Do you have any kids? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I got a 14 year old kid or whatever, 15 year old kid. And they're like, does he play basketball? And the guy's like, I don't, I don't know, maybe. And then they decide I'm coming over there. And this guy goes over there, finds this kid, gets him playing basketball. And now he's in the NBA and that guy is his agent. So it sounds like that agent really paid his dues. Yeah, so he was seven feet tall. His his dad's name was, it's H-A-R-I-Z. I don't know how you pronounce it. Maybe Hariz Nurkic, a police officer in Bosnia, uh, seven feet tall, 400 pounds. And then allegedly that's what happened. And he was like this famous, like badass, like almost like a, like a villain in Taken, but he's on the good side because he was a cop. And yeah, I mean, you're right. That's probably... Since Hakeem Olajuwon, I still think Hakeem Olajuwon is the most incredible success story in the NBA. This is probably second, I would say. Well, I mean, Olajuwon is <laughs> the greatest success story. I mean, Manute Bull, too, because, I mean, he really came from nothing. You know, right. it's like, you know, it was like it was, uh, you know, and and um, uh, it, I just find it amazing that, like, you know, it's, very often, it's like I don't really trust agents. Normally, likes the idea of sports agents. You know, it's right. like they're kind of glomming onto these guys. But like, I, I, this guy, he's fine. If that's what he's doing, if he's reading the internet looking for tall cops in order to find NBA players, that uh, it seems like he he, he invested his time. You know? It does sound like a bad sports movie that somebody would write the script, but it never actually gets made. You know, like that Kevin Bacon movie. What was that? The air up there where Kevin Bacon goes to Africa yeah. to find whatever. But this would be like, this guy reads the story. You'd have the seven foot, 400 pound bouncer and you'd do the whole thing but no, and nobody would believe it. I think the thing with Hakeem that I, I was always amazed by and I've written about it, but um, just that he played soccer in Nigeria and was able to develop this crazy footwork. And then just because he grew to a certain point, they were like, you should try basketball. And he just goes into basketball with this crazy, you know, once in a generation footwork that he had just for this completely bizarre reason that would just never happen now. You know, I, I don't see any scenario where. Well, didn't that kind of happen with Embiid? 
I, I guess, but I, I think playing basketball till late in his life. And he's very similar in terms of how the degree when Embiid was at Kansas, I thought to myself, he'll play in the NBA. He'll be like a rim protector. Yeah. He might be able to, you know, I would have had, I would have never guessed, but they, that he would be the best offensive center in the league, which he clearly is right now. Yeah. The only thing is they had the beyond, beyond borders program at that point, And that's how they found Embiid. So it was actually easier to target somebody like that. When Hakeem was playing, it was, all of it was just a fluke. Nobody was looking for players in Nigeria, you know? And it, I guess Abaka's story is pretty crazy too. We told that story in a documentary, just like how he came out of the Congo and had to live different. Now, now there's, there's more, I mean, this guy, Pascal Siakam on Toronto, who's really good. He's another one. He's from Cameroon. And, you know, this is when we had uh, Masai Uheri on the, on the podcast last year, it was, this is like his passion is to find more and more of these guys who, you know, he's so convinced that there are more and more of them are out there that, you know, the stuff's going to be in place. Now the streaming of the games is probably going to get to Africa at some point in all the different, uh, you know, the bigger hubs and um, who knows? I don't know. But 20 years, you could tell me basketball players that, that, the league would be 50% American players and 50% elsewhere. And I would believe it. Right. I mean, it does seem at some point there's going to be a lot of Chinese players in the NBA. I You'd mean, think. Just kind of dictates that has to happen at some point, but you know, the, the world is a big place, Bill. And this is good. Mm. I wanted to ask you something. You know, okay. So I was recently in Australia. Yeah. Okay? And uh, an interesting thing happened. It just, it kind of proves the cliche that Americans just do not know about anything in the world except what's happening in America. I feel like I follow sports relatively closely. What do you know about the Melbourne Cup? Hey, let's talk about Microsoft Surface. If you need a device that helps you get stuff done, but is also perfect when you want to catch up on some fun, like streaming live sports or checking on your fantasy team, check out the latest member of the Microsoft Surface family. It's the new Surface Pro 6. Just take the keyboard off and use it like a tablet or snap it back on and use it like a laptop with up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor. It's everything you love about the Surface Pro. Now, even more powerful. Check that out. Hey, since we're here, another thing to check out. What about the New Yorker? one of the greatest magazines of all time. The New Yorker, an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, The New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling, beautiful pieces, poetry, fiction, cultural criticism, satire. The best writing anywhere, everywhere, with home delivery of the print edition each week or read on the go with The New Yorker Today app or via Google News. I've been reading The New Yorker pretty much my whole life. Roger Angel was was uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite writers. Um, first with his books that I started reading like late 70s, early 80s about baseball. And then the stupid me finally realized that he was actually in a magazine too. And I could just read those in The New Yorker. So that's when I started reading. Um, I've been reading ever since. The only person I know who likes The New Yorker more than me is Joe House who was, I think, the first person who got their digital app. Anyway, don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash BS. Listeners of this podcast save 50% when they enter code BS with the special offer. You'll receive 12 issues for just $6 plus. Get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag 
choose between print, digital, or a combo subscription. Subscribe to the New Yorker. Read something that means something. Again, 12 issues for six hours and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash BS. What is it? <laughs> okay, so I'm in, I'm in Australia for this thing called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. So I, I, I fly over there, you know, it's a super long flight. Um, I have an event on Saturday. Um, I'm off Sunday, but over there, Sunday is our Saturday. So I go to this, I find this casino nearby and I watch college football there. And then Monday, of course, it's Sunday, so the NFL games are on. But Tuesday is my last day there and I'm flying back. I get up and go down into my hotel, you know, walk through kind of the bar is there. And it's like 10 in the morning and the bar is filled with people just dressed insane. Okay. Dressed like they're like going to some gala in 1925. Okay. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? You know, it's like, why, why are they all waiting, milling around in this bar? And why is this bar bringing in five TVs? I walk outside. No one's working in Sydney. Okay. I'm not even in Melbourne. I'm in Sydney. Nobody seems to be working. They all seem to be milling around, drinking at noon, you know, and they're all getting ready for the Melbourne Cup, which is a thoroughbred horse race on a grass track. It happens at three o'clock. But the entire country seems to shut down. Apparently in Melbourne, the only people who have to work are like people who work in bars. Everybody gets the everyone it's like it's like a combination of the Kentucky Derby and the Super Bowl, and like Memorial Day, because like nobody's doing anything. And the entire country watches this horse race. And I don't even know if this is possible, but I heard like three people say it. Between noon and three o'clock on that day, in the country, there are 3,000 bets placed on this horse race every second. Jesus. Is that even possible? But it's like the, the, it's all and like I had never I never knew this thing and and like there's this there's this Australian author who they kind of think like some people think will be like like this next major author his name is Gerald Murnane he's this old guy he works as a bartender he doesn't use the internet he's like a recluse sort of or not really a recluse but like just stays out of the public eye but he's obsessed with memory and one of his claims to fame or claims to fame is that he can recite every winner of the Melbourne Cup in history in sequence, and the race started in 1861. Oh, my God. It's a crazy thing. It's like Rain Man. I know before, like, yes, yeah, that's like like his thing. He's obsessed with memorizing things. But it was just bizarre to experience something that I had never heard about that appears to be the single biggest sporting day in an entire country. It's just, it was weird. I, I can't believe I'd never, I asked other people when I got back to the United States, what do you know about the Melbourne cup? They all did the same thing you did. They're like, is that like Australian rules football? I, was like, mm, I don't know. I would have thought that too. So what you just described is yet another reason to love Australia. I love Australia. I haven't gone there yet, but I, I know I would like it. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's, I've liked everybody I've met from there. Uh, it just seems super fun. Everybody's kind of, <laughs> I don't know, they have a nice spirit about them. But what you described, that was basically, that's what that's what 
Massachusetts people have with Patriots Day where we get the day off when they run the marathon. And it's like the, it's a special holiday just for people in Massachusetts and really like in the Boston area. Um, but I always wondered why more cities didn't do that because it becomes this great day that everybody looks forward to. And, you know, it's a three day weekend and it's like unique to people who live there. And you would just think like San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, all these different places would just want their own version of that day. Cause it's really cool. You, you can't just, you can't just do those things though. I mean, it's like when stores try to be like, Oh, Christmas in July or whatever. They, it would be, I'm sure they would think it would be great if we could convince people to have a second Christmas in the summer, but yeah. you just can't decide, <laughs> you know, traditions have to be traditional. They have to come organically and they have to be around a long time. Well, like what if they decided in LA that the first Dodgers home game was just a holiday in LA. Okay, would well, that who work? Who decides? I don't know. The who, people, would, who would be the they deciding? The people who run California. Like the governor. <laughs> It'd be a good, good, good move. Just, that should be part of somebody's election push. It's like, hey, if you vote for me, you get a day off during the Dodgers home game. We had somebody here, you, you know, Jerry Brown, who famously was, you know, 40 years ago was doing this and then circled back. He squashed. They wanted to. Yeah, ex- yeah he used to. He used to date Linda Ronson. That that was he became famous for that. Um, he squashed. There was this big push to extend last call in L.A. till four in the morning, and everybody was excited about it, including uh, some of the degenerates who worked for the Ringer, and uh, and Jerry Brown, who's like in his seventies at this point, squashed it, and people were really mad about it. And I was like, what? Why, why squash that? Like, it, it, wouldn't you want to garner favor with your younger voters to extend the last call? Plus, nephew Kyle. Yes. Is last call last call in LA if it was four o'clock? Is that a good thing or a bad thing for you? I'd probably roll out around three, three thirty. Three? Yeah. Is that good for your health long term? Yeah, I feel like two is too early sometimes. Sometimes Man, it that's just how does. I feel. They do this with All Star Weekends too, where you'd be like. I remember in Dallas one year, it just shut down at like 145. So you, you have all these people come to to celebrate a weekend in your city. And then you're basically, they have dinner and then you're telling them they drink for an hour and they have to go back to their hotel room. I don't know. Things should be more well, fun, yeah, Chuck. You know, it, it, it's, it's four o'clock in New York and that does really change the culture, the drinking culture when you can stay somewhere to four. Whereas like when I was growing up in North Dakota, it was one. Right. So there was this whole kind of culture of going to people's houses after the bar, but you could also buy off sale at the bar. So you could like go up just to the bar and like buy a bottle of Jack Daniels or whatever and go home. Yeah. I don't, um, with the, in the Uber generation, the Uber Lyft generation, it seems like, uh, the, the DWI stuff would be mitigated a little bit, but maybe I'll be naive. Oh, it's gotta be. Yeah. I, I just, it's, I just, I can't imagine why, like you, if you're driving drunk now, man, you're really like, you don't care because it's like, yeah. it wasn't, you know, you, not just that, like, you know, when it was, there used to be the problem. It's like, well, I got my car to the bar. Now I got to get my car home. Right. Like that was always the big deal. Like I had, I mean, I will admit I drove drunk hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And part of, I mean, stupidly, I can't believe I never got a DUI or never killed anyone or myself, but part of the reason was like I had to get my car home. Like I, I can't, yeah. 
leave my car at this place. But now if you could have a car take you to the bar and back, and it's real easy, like, you know, in most cities, getting a taxi is kind of complicated. Like, you know, you have to call and all these things. You don't right. know how long it will take to get there, but that's not how it is now. So, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I also had a lot of drinking and driving moments that I regret. And the thing is, there was no education for it 30 years ago, you know, and it, it was, I mean, so many things were different about 30 years ago. They, this could be a 19 hour podcast. But. What was the, what was the lack of education? You're like, Oh, maybe I'm driving better. <laughs> no, it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't really discouraged like this. Like you might, your, your goal was to not get a DWI. You never, you never really thought about the moral consequences or holy I shit, I could kill did. myself or somebody else. Thing. Um, yeah, the goal that was is, the only thing I thought about was avoiding the police. That was the only thing. That yeah, the goal was to get yeah. your car home. And every group of friends had, if you know, especially like in college, there was always the one friend who was always the best at at driving after having a few, and that was the one who drove. And I, I just look back now, and it's fucking crazy. This was only thirty years ago, but it's well been like three hundred years ago, you know. But we didn't know any better. Um, and I think, well, you know, I have like my brothers and sisters who are like 18, 17, 16 years older than me when they were young, they told me a DUI was 60 bucks. That was it. Right. You would just pay a $60 fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I had two experiences in the mid nineties that are fork in the road moments for me. And both when drinking and driving and I look back now, I'm like, God, I'm such a fucking idiot. I can't believe I did that. But, you know, when you're young and especially when the air is, you know, not doing, not accentuating certain things. Now, like you, there's commercials left and right. There's a real, real warranted fear of all of it. But, um, you know, I, I look back at the late 80s, early 90s and I'm I'm like, God, why, why didn't we know any of this stuff? It was really nuts. Like we, we, I talk about this with my college roommates all the time. We're always like amazed by how stupid everything was back then. But now it seems like it's better. Now I wonder if it's shifting too far the other way where people are just going to be too wary and too cautious about everything. I'm not, not talking about drinking and driving, but just like in it, just in general, there's just such a fear now of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, crossing some sort of line that you don't know if you crossed it or not. And just how this is going to affect everybody going forward. I'm, I'm curious. Well, and it is it is an, an interesting combination of things that have happened. Is that there, people are more public about their life, but the penalty, like the social penalty for making a mistake, uh, has increased. And I don't know if, it, if those things are if those things are sort of like a if they happen kind of in orchestra, or if this is just kind of like an unexpected consequence of two things happening at once, but. Um, you know, it would be, uh, it wasn't that long ago where like, say a high profile person got a DUI. Like, let's say there's somebody out there who, uh, there's just a, a large you know, group of people who dislike the person, somebody who kind of, you know, in like, in like a Skip Bayless role or whatever. If Skip Bayless was to get a DUI, people would never let him forget it. Yeah. Like they would. He would bring it up every day for the rest of his life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's 
I so think it's like a real, it's just real dangerous. Like if you don't, if you're, if you're in a position where you have a lot of people who like had this pre-existing, uh, you know, issue with you or a kind of adversarial relationship with you, a mistake like that just, just, just would never end, you know? Yeah. And it's weird because at the same time, people are more sympathetic than ever to certain things, right? Like, I think we're more sympathetic than ever to, um, battles with sexual identity, um, to we're more sympathetic than ever to struggles with mental illness. You know, these are things that nobody gave a shit about 10 years ago. And now people do care about, and they should care about it. But, um, so at the same time we have that stuff, but then if somebody makes a mistake, the pile on aspect of it, um, if it's a preventable mistake, the pile on aspect to it is the scariest it's ever been. I think Twitter, Twitter now, you know, and, twi- and Twitter can be deceiving because if it's 500 people coming at you, it can feel like 500 million, you know, and it can feel like a hurricane and it's not. But at the same time, uh, I do think it makes, it, it's just kind of scary. You know, you make a mistake and uh, whether you say something the wrong way or you wrote a piece and you put a line in there you shouldn't have put in or whatever. And it's like, fuck, people come at you left and right. And um, I think for younger writers and younger podcast people or younger people who are on TV or whatever, like there, there's really no margin of error anymore. And that's that's pretty scary that you can't just say, oh, I said that wrong. I apologize. I learned my lesson. I'm better for it now. That that it can't just be over at that point, you know. Yeah, that is uh, that you know. But then there's also like, okay, so I don't know what percentage of the country is on Twitter. At one point, they used to say 11, percent uh, and then maybe now it's 14 percent or something. I'm not really know, but it's about 100 percent of people in the media. So when something like that is happening on Twitter, when an event is happening on Twitter, it's almost everybody who works in the traditional media because they use Twitter to promote themselves for the most part is like, uh, uh, it seems as though they all know about this and that this is a central thing. Yeah. And then there's this whole percentage of people who, who don't find out about it until like something becomes so controversial. It spills over CNN or USA today or whatever, you know? Um, and I, I don't know what their feelings are about these things we're talking about. I mean, it is possible that when these things explode on social media and it just seems like someone is being crucified or, you know, then I wonder if there's a large percentage of the country who just use that as completely meaningless. And then yeah. that explains why when the person makes a comeback that the same people who were kind of part of the crucifixion group, they're like, how is this person already back? Like how, 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 you know, how is, they've only been away for a year or whatever. How are they let back in? And I wonder if it's because the majority of people never thought it was a problem to begin with. They right. were like, oh, I, I didn't see that person for a while. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, it, it, this seems to be a social media thing, but people move from one thing they're fired up about to the next thing. So if you happen to be the thing that day that everybody's upset about, you take your 24-hour beating, basically. And then it's like, oh, there's something else. Let's go over here. You know, and it's just like that. It's that whole outrage culture that we've talked about on the podcast before. It's worse than ever. There's no question. And, you know, I, I look at whether you're for for the Trump presidency or against it. 
I think the outrage culture has really worked against it, the people who are the opponents of Trump. Because when you're outraged by everything and then you have somebody in the White House who you really find outrageous, it's it's hard to have that same impact with your words and your actions when you've also overreacted to all these other things. And I don't know. There seems like there should be a middle balance. Well, it also sort of validates his argument, which is that he's being persecuted unjustly because, it, it, you know, he, he, he and then his supporters basically look at him and say, like, well, the entire world is against him. And it's incredibly easy to uh, to find evidence that they are, you know, if that's what you want to believe, it's incredibly easy to create um, this silo where it appears as as the only thing that's happening to him is criticism. I'm curious now. It's 2018. Uh, maybe we're kind of jumping the gun on this, but what percentage would you put on the likelihood of Trump's reelection tonight, today, prior to Christmas 2018? God, I mean, I think he could absolutely get reelected. The question is whether he gets impeached or he has to resign before then. But the bar I don't is, think that's going to happen. The bar is so low to get re to get reelected now. What do you need? Like 30, 37 percent of your votes now or something? What what is it? It's a much lower the number than it used to be. Popular vote? Yeah. I well, it, I mean, it, there is there are ways you could work it where you could probably I, I I would I would be interested to see what's the lowest percentage of the popular vote you could get and still become president. I bet it's incredibly low now. Um, but I'm just would you would you place the odds above or below forty percent? I would say 55%. 55%. That he gets okay. reelected, yeah. But I mean, yes. what he did was something that we've never really fully seen um, a politician do, at, you know, at, on the national stage, is just to basically quadruple down on his base and screw everybody else. And, and I got to say, it reminds me a little of how Goodell has run the NFL, um, where Goodell is just like, I'm quadrupling down on my base, which are my 32 NFL owners and screw everybody else. I don't care. I, I'm not here. I'm not here to make you happier about being a football fan. I'm not here for the players. I am not here to um, be a judge for certain incidents that we have that are unseemly. Uh, I'll contradict myself and I'll contradict rulings that I did in the past. And I don't care what you think. All I care about is that these 32 guys are happy with the job I'm doing and that's it. I'll take all the bullets for them and that's my base. And so we've seen it with the, all the stuff Trump's done in the last two years. We've seen it with Goodell in football this whole decade. Am I crazy or is that accurate? Well, yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I guess, okay. It's, it's not crazy. I only, let me close this edge. Is Goodell's base, the third Jew owners, or is Goodell's base, as he would see it, the people who love football solely as a sport? And that the only thing that matters to, and I would say this is probably the majority of people who consistently watch football, who watch it every week, that the value of the product is the only thing that matters. Because here's the deal. This is a pretty good NFL season really okay, good. like like on the field it's the best it's been in a while and as a consequence i feel like a lot of the things we've been talking about on these podcasts over the last two or three years have to a degree sort of fade into the background 
I hear a lot less conversation about concussion. It seems like the Ka- Ka- uh, the Kaepernick thing is is you know it, it, we've got to a point now where he hasn't played for a while. He hasn't played long enough that it actually isn't reasonable to say, you know, the you know the Redskins should sign him or whatever. It's like he's he's missed too much time now. Yeah, and, you know, and was in a, and left the league at a point where he was sort of fighting to be a backup on at the time about the worst team in the league, you know, not to mention the fact that if he tried to come back and play now in all likelihood, it would hurt his legacy and sort of hurt his political position. But you don't hear people talking about those things as much because they talk about Mahomes now. Like that's really kind of fun to talk about. You know, it's been a really kind of fun thing there. Or um, you know, even the cream hunt thing. I was a, I was surprised the Chiefs waved him the way they did. Were you surprised? Yeah, I thought they would kind of suspend him for the year and try to get Absolutely. him help. Seemed to be yeah. the move. They were like, "We're not fucking around," and they really couldn't because they also have Tyreek Hill. So yeah, and it, you know, it, it, re- and it was a good move because I, it's just it's done. Like that, that situation seems to be over. Um, well, there was also I, uh, there was a. There was a sneaky part of that whole thing too, which became obvious if you watched Chiefs the last couple of weeks. The drop off from Kareem Hunt to Spencer Ware and Damian Williams was not dramatic. You know, it was a drop off, but it, it wasn't crippling and it still allowed them to compete for a Super Bowl. If that had been Tyreek Hill, I would have been really interested to see how they handled it because they have no replacement for him and he's one of the best weapons we have in the league. Yeah, there really is no replacement. For yeah, him. you can't I mean, replace Tyreek. He he's not like he's not the best receiver in the league, but the the what he brings in terms of just his speed on the field is so unique yeah, he's, that, and it really goes well with the kind of quarterback he has. You know, he is one of the most memorable offensive skill position guys I've ever seen. I honestly think he's the fastest football player I've ever I've ever watched. I don't even know who else would be in that conversation. I think when Randy Moss really had it going on those, like, you know, those, the button hooks, the 50 yard button hooks and things like that, it really did seem like he could outrun anyone on the earth. And he had those long strides. He was, he was like a, six, he six. He was a long strider. That yeah. was the thing. He was just like, if a guy was his speed, he was like Usain Bolt in that way. If a guy's the same speed as him because of his height, he's going to get separation. He'll look faster than the other guys he's running against. Right. Um, and know, he, and that, you know, that, that. the other thing that's crazy about Hill is he's running full speed, what would be full speed for a normal human being, but he's not in fifth gear where he can like, he'll cross the middle on some pass and he's going full speed, but he's not yet. So these guys, you, what you look at the defenders running with them and they're running as fast as they can. And he's like on cruise control kind of, but he's going as fast as them. And then he kicks in this extra gear and I've just never seen anything like that. I mean, when we were growing up, well, you know, and so, it was something else has changed. What? I was listening to some guys talk about this on the radio, and it was kind of an interesting point. Okay, they were talking about uh, Tyreek, but being the idea of him being the fastest player that they'd seen. Um, and then someone brought up Bob Hayes. Yeah, okay? you know, Bob Hayes was this Olympic sprinter who then played for the Cowboys. But you know, he played in a period where. And this was true at the pro level, the college level, and the high school. He played in a period where everyone was taught 
to basically run straight lines and make their cuts at specific angles. Yeah. Like, you see guys in the NFL now, the way the offenses are run, these guys are kind of running these curved pass patterns. You know, the, the Rams really started that. Like, uh, you know, when, when they had those real good teams at the kind of the turn of the century where they would have these sort of kind of uh, these uh, almost like like an arcing kind of trajectory to these pass routes. The Warner Rams, yeah. It makes yeah. a guy like it makes a guy harder to run with because you've got to expend so much energy to keep up with him, and you can't really anticipate that that kind of move across the field because when he has to cut, if say he was running like a conventional post pattern where he's like running down, stop, you know, you know, kind of making the break toward the post or whatever, he, the runner, you know, the receiver himself had to sort of slow down or kind of idle down. They don't do that now. Like they can run these patterns without really increasing their speed. And he just gets away from these guys. I remember when we were growing up, the two fastest guys were Cliff Branch and Stanley Morgan, right? For receivers. And then. Oh, and also the running back, the running backs, or no, the the, the corner for the Redskins. Uh, oh, Daryl Green. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Green. He yeah. was always, yeah. yeah. So then the Niners, Renato Nehemiah was that famous hurdler. And the mm-hmm. Niners signed him with basically to be that Bob Hayes, like just just run a straight line. We'll teach you two pass routes. You're faster than everyone. And he was in the cover of Sports Illustrated, which was a really Kurt big deal. The football under his arm. Yeah, which was yeah. a really big deal back then. Being on the cover of Sports Illustrated was about as significant as thing most significant thing you pull off back then, and uh, and it was really fascinating to see it was going to play out. That it was a disaster, and uh, I can't remember what was wrong with him. I can't remember if he couldn't catch or if he just couldn't figure it out or what happened. But um, he was on the Niners, then he went to the Raiders, and it just it it never worked. So well, and there was the idea of Ron Brown. You remember him? He yeah, was another guy who was an Olympic sprinter and. Uh, a, a football player, so it seemed like he would be able to sort of maybe bridge that gap. It didn't really work. Willie Galt actually is a pretty good example of someone who was a track guy. Yep. Who who was good? Was able to translate that. Yeah. You know. Hold um, on. Uh, we got to take a break, and I have I have a good question for you. Hold on. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, you've already figured out smart ways to spend your time. Here's another one: the New York Times crossword crossword app. Can't even speak. Goes perfectly with a podcast. You can do the crossword and and listen to a podcast right now. Maybe somebody's doing this. The crossword app is a fun, clever way to stay sharp. Every day there's a new puzzle, a new opportunity to challenge yourself with play. And now with the mini crossword, squeeze in a game in just a couple minutes. Each mini puzzle is stimulating, quick, and most important, fun. Play by yourself or challenge your friends. Post your best times. Share the satisfaction that comes from solving. Whenever you have downtime, discover wordplay every day. It's time well spent. Um... I love the crosswords. I go in little binges with them. Um, my dad is the biggest crossword fan I know, and he's always done the Boston Globe crossword because, you know, he lives in Boston. Now he can get the New York Times crossword. He can challenge people. He can do the whole thing. Check it out. Download the New York Times crossroad app at newyorktimes.com slash mini. All right, I have this question for you. Let's say the NFL said, yeah, football's dangerous. Um, we actually think it got a little too soft over the last year. We thought we think we might have swung too far. So here's what we're going to do. 
we're admitting it's dangerous. We're telling people the risks. We've studied all these concussion stuff for the last few years. We figured out a way to make it a little safer. But, and we're, and we're going to protect quarterbacks. You can't hit their knees, stuff like that. You can't take cheap shots of them late. But we, we want it to be a little more physical. And where we're going is this. Um, it's going to be more physical. It won't be as crazy as some of the NFL films highlights of like Deacon Jones throwing Terry Bradshaw on his head and that kind of stuff. But it's going to be more physical. This isn't, this is maybe isn't a sport for everybody. If you come in, you got to know the risks. And it would basically be their equivalent of the cigarette companies selling warning cigarettes could cause cancer. And then they just lay it out on the table. And it's like, if you want to play, here are the risk. You can't sue us. Let's go. Um, people want a physical, semi-violent football game. Maybe not quite as violent as 10 years ago, but 80% as violent. How do you think that would fly? an interesting thing because okay i've kind of a two-part answer to that first part is that without that language without it directly happening that sort of is a situation now right like we, we 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 assume that anyone playing football knows that uh this is a dangerous game and that the dangers might even be uh deeper than they appear on the surface i i, I it's sort of hard for me to imagine the uh, you know uh, a football player now playing even at the high school level who who has never heard this. But what you're saying is if the NFL actively said this, okay, um, they would have to if they framed it as transparency because that shuts a lot of people up. If you say things are transparent, there's just a whole group of people who are like, well, it's great, it must be good then, it must be good, okay. So they're just saying like we're being transparent about this, that there is no way for this sport to exist uh, without there being uh, a degree of danger to the participants. And if that is unacceptable to you, don't play this game. Okay. Yep. Um, I suppose what the, you know, it would be, it would be widely criticized. And the argument that would be made was that, uh, there are certain people who with they, they have limited potential for a good life. Football presents the only possibility for them to substantially change their life and the life of the people in their family. And you're saying that you're not even going to attempt to protect them. You're almost going to penalize them physically for doing really the only option society has provided. Um, and there is some truth in that. Uh, but I think for the most part, uh, fans would appreciate that. Well, you know, so, it's like a weird thing, but I think, I think that, I think that it would be perceived by, um, by the average person who watches football. It's like, I'm glad they're just finally saying it. Good. You know? Well, so we have a test case already. The UFC, the UFC has established themselves as a violent sport where they quote unquote care about their athletes if the guy gets knocked out or cold cocked or is getting the crap beat out of them, the referee will jump in. I would, I would say it's pretty safe to say that there's been concussions in the MMA. There hasn't been the same outrage that there's been with the NFL because with the MMA, um, people just kind of expect it and it's what they've signed up for and they've come to grips with it. They've come to grips with it. If they're boxing fans or MMA fans, 
this is the sport I've chosen. I know bad things will happen. And these fighters know the risks, but they're doing it anyway. And that makes it okay. And I guess my question is, I think the biggest problem with the NFL over the last however many decades was that it really does seem like the owners and the people that work for the teams knew the risks, but the players didn't. But now we know the risks. So couldn't they spin this now a certain way, I guess, is my question. Well, okay, when you talk about the MMA, the you know, when when I was in Australia in that casino, there was there was those big fights uh in uh in Madison Square Garden. And like Joe Rogan is like the Cozell kind of a vet. He's like kind of the interesting announcer on that. And that was on the biggest screen in the casino. When, not counting the horse race day, but like even during the football days, the biggest screen had this UFC stuff. And one thing that was very clear sitting in that casino, but I guess I didn't need to be in a casino to realize this is there's not a lot of casual fans of that. Yeah. And true. that is the real difference here because you talk about, you know, the NFL owners, what they know or what they would say one thing would say the other, I would agree with you. But the biggest thing is there is no, um, uh, it's very clear that the NFL wants casual fans. The yeah. NFL, it's really important for the magnitude of the NFL to include people who barely care at all, you know? And that is why this is such kind of a moral and ethical problem for the culture at large, because <laughs> there's these people who are suddenly kind of in the situation where they feel like they are complicit in these guys getting hurt. And they were like, I didn't sign up for this. I just wanted something to do on Sunday. Right. Like I just, everyone else was at the bar doing it, you know? And that's why, you know, that's why, uh, like a, a sport like, you know, like, like mixed martial arts, she's not really the kind of person who's like, um, I don't know, maybe I'll watch this basketball game tonight, or maybe I'll watch mixed martial arts. That's not really how it is, you know? Yeah. But I think the UFC was hoping that would become how it is. And maybe, maybe they're finding out that, you know, it's kind of difficult. Kyle and I were watching football on Sunday. We were watching the Seahawks game. They're playing the Niners. And there's a play I've never seen before in football. And it made me think that some of these rule tweaks have actually worked. It was the linebacker on Seattle, not Bobby Wagner. What was that other guy's name? Can't remember. I'm blanking. It was the guy originally. 55, Clark. Yeah. Clark um, came in through the middle and crushed the quarterback right as he was throwing it and hit him, had his arms wrapped around him. As they're falling to the ground, in the old days, he just would have driven him into the turf. Crushes him, arms wrapped around. As they're falling to the ground, throws his arms out. So now he lands on the guy just with his helmet and his torso and then jumped up with his hands up. Like, look, see, I see, I pulled my arms back. I didn't drive him into the ground. And it was like one of the smartest football plays I've ever seen because they absolutely would have given him the penalty. And I was thinking like that my big question with all of this was how do you teach these guys who are like these trained missiles who are running 20 miles an hour at somebody or 18 miles an hour, however fast they're going, to in a split second realize, oh, that guy ducked his head. I now I won't hit him, or now I'll hold up. Well, yeah, yeah. and you're seeing some people take advantage of this. Like, okay, I think the most interesting problem within the way the rules are now um, is kind of the dealing with Cam Newton as a runner. Yeah. Okay. So when he went like like because the Panthers are basically out of it. You know, he's uh, he's kind of sliding. He doesn't, you know, but let's say the Panthers 
were really competing for the playoffs. They're competing for a championship. And, and they got to the playoffs. And if I was his coach, I would look at him and I'd be like, well, you know, when you're just a passer, you're maybe among the 12 or 15 best quarterbacks in the league. But when you also run, you're an elite player. I would basically, when he's really running, I would pretty much place him in the top five of quarterbacks that he had so much. But when he's running upfield, if you're a defender, what are you supposed to do? Because right. he could slide. Uh, and if you do that, and if you hit him, you know, there's going to be this penalty and you get kicked out of the game. But if he chooses not to slide, he's going to truck the guy. Yeah. I mean, he's so big and so powerful. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do if you're trying to tackle him in the open field and you're unsure if he's going to give himself up or not. I also find it very odd, um, kind of unsettling almost, even though it's exciting, the number of players now who, when running the ball, attempt to hurdle oncoming tackles. Kamara did it last they night. Barkley yeah. does this all the time. Yeah. And uh, and there was one in the Saints game last night. That happened. Kamara. That got called back by a penalty. Yeah. Um, I don't uh, – I, I find that to be uh, – uh, like – I'm, I'm not. I think it's almost like the guys now are a little more confident that if they do that and they're exposed in the air like that, the defender's not going to just put his helmet into their chest and break him in two. So they're doing this thing that actually seems more dangerous by taking, which is taking advantage of the safety rule. Yeah, know? that's what happened to. I mean, this is one of the many reasons why Gronk is breaking down to the point of no return now, where you know. For the last few years, as they changed the hit the guy in the chest rolls, which is how everybody would hit him, and sometimes that hit would end up hitting him in the head, and you get a penalty and all that stuff. Now these safeties and cornerbacks are just told to go at the knees. So it's like Kelsey, Gronk, George Kittle. Anytime those guys get the ball over the middle and they're turning around, there's somebody just diving full speed at their knees and their hips. And now Gronk's whole body is breaking down. I'm convinced it's because he's taken so many lower body shots. Um, that in a you weird know, I, way, I, I it's it. ruined okay. his career. This, I feel I have to disagree with you and a lot of other people with sort of the takes you guys had after the Patriots Dolphins game in that last play. And oh, let's hear why. it. Okay. Well, okay. There was all these people I just saw sort of being like, Bill Jack is a genius, but he's finally failed, you know? How did he allow this to happen? Okay, first of all, the play that happened, you could run that a thousand times and it would work once. I mean, I don't, I, maybe we need Nate Silver or hear someone tell us what, what is the likelihood of scoring from your own 31 with three laterals in one play? I don't know what the likelihood is, but so it's like a thousand to one, maybe 10,000 to one. Okay. Well, the Patriots have a defensive formation they use against Hell Marys, and they put their biggest, most athletic player in the back, just like they did with Moss. I don't think it's reasonable to expect the team to have a kind of a last-gasp defensive formation if you know the quarterback could reach the end zone with his arm or if they're at the He couldn't, though. Uh, you need to he couldn't, well, he couldn't he reach could, the end zone. Yeah, he couldn't but, throw the ball like, 75 I, yards. I, I, exactly. Exactly. But what I'm saying is I don't know if it's reasonable to expect a team uh, to have that many different sort of formations and personnel alignments for situations that almost never happen. 
and never really succeed outside of these examples that we remember. Also, you know, if Croc doesn't, if it's like his cleat doesn't catch the ground or whatever, if he, if he manages to get there and pushes that guy out at the one or two, I guarantee you a lot of the people who attacked Bilicek for doing this would be like, see, the genius at work. He put his biggest, <laughs> most athletic guy in the back, yeah. stopped him at the two. How many other coaches would have done that? No one. He's a genius. But because it didn't work, suddenly it's like, oh, oh he's just, he doesn't have it anymore. He's, Did you? He's starting to, you know. Did you see the Instagram video somebody took from the end zone, a Dolphins fan of that play from the vantage point of right behind the uprights where Gronk's just standing there for a good five seconds. He's just zoning out or I don't know what he's doing. He just doesn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden you see Drake just kind of emerge from all of these white jerseys. And then Gronk's like, oh shit. And then he's like, I gotta go get him. Uh, it wasn't great. I, I here's Here's my idea. Put... Put defensive players on the field when somebody has to go 75 yards. It's just a crazy, well, crazy sure, thought I had. Sure. I mean, but like I, I, there's so many things to worry about that. Are you really going to also build in a package for every possible last play scenario on a play that has a minuscule chance of working? I mean, well, I think that's a real bad investment of time. Well, but you act like you like, act like there's 400 scenarios. It's like there's, a Hail Mary from the 25 and a Hail Mary from the 50. It's two defenses. How hard is this? You just have like, all right, they're on their 20 with eight seconds left. What defense do we have? I don't think that's like were 10 minutes in practice. Many opportunities. There were many opportunities on that play to stop it from succeeding. True. Many plays. Many, many situations there within that one play, there were many plays within it. I do not think the failure was in the defensive alignment or the personnel they had on the field. It's just that these things never happen except when they do. And it did. And it just, it, if it, it, it seemed like an unfair criticism to me. I mean, you're the same person who thinks Oswald acted alone. So I'm not surprised to hear you think Gronk should have been out there. Hold on. We got to take one more break. Hey, video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Fewer long distance trips, more FaceTime at the click of a mouse. And in 2018, the clear winner is Zoom. Zoom delivers flawless video, pin drop, clear audio, and instant sharing across any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Share anything with anyone, a Word file, a spreadsheet, a presentation deck, Zoom. Everything you always wanted. Video communication to be with some amazing features you didn't think of, but you'll wonder how you lived without them. Visit doom.us to set up your free account today. That is zoom.us. Zoom.us. Meet happy with Zoom video communications. And since we're here, don't forget the rewatchables. Con Air is up. It's one of the most important podcasts I've ever done in my life. And then next week, Tombstone. Check that out. Subscribe. We had an awesome year. We're coming back with, I think, 50 episodes next year. We're even going to bring in a couple of celebrities to do some of the movies with us. So yeah, subscribe to that. Apple Podcast Best of 2018. Was one of the winners of that one. Yeah, the rewatchables. All right, back to this podcast. We didn't talk about Phil Rivers, and I really want to talk about him, and I'm excited for your thoughts on him. I feel like he's been in our lives for a long time, and I remember we were in a ringer meeting maybe two months ago, and May said he was the best quarterback that's never won a Super Bowl, and I was kind of like, whoa, that's a take, and then I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, Oh yeah. Well, that's wrong. You're, 
Marino's the best. Oh, that, that's Marino's what he said. I'm sorry. Never, I besmirched Mays. He said second best. He said Marino first. And he said yeah. after Marino, it's Rivers. He meant, I meant best active, but, um, and I did a double oh, take. Oh, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That, 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 that Rivers is the second best Chargers quarterback to have never won a Super Bowl. Yeah, he's because better than Fouts. His performances were way were beyond. I mean, the gap between Fouts and everyone else for the three years he was great was, you know, more than anybody I can really. It's been a while. I don't know when the last time it's been a quarterback has been that much difference. You know, um, but here's the thing about Philip Rivers. Okay, so I used to not like him at all. Uh, I would say I disliked him. He reminded me of Rick Helling for a, a bunch of different reasons, and. I, I just I did. And he got into that sort of dispute with Jay Cutler. You remember that? And, yeah. And I took Jay Cutler's side at the time. Like I was like, oh, Jay Cutler went to Vanderbilt. He's probably the smarter guy or whatever. You know, just not knowing anything else. But at this point, I think Philip Rivers is my favorite player in the league. Whoa. And well, you know, and this is the thing. Okay, there are certain things that I find really frustrating and I hate hearing announcers say and two of them are it's like oh it's like he wants it so much and he's like you know just a gunslinger or whatever all those things and yet with him man it does you can just see the competitiveness dripping off him he seems to care more about playing football than anyone I have seen in a very long time and uh, he just he has that kind of that funny throwing motion but he really goes for it man like that that last drive against the Chiefs, the throw he made on fourth down was like his gutsy and it was technically great. And then here's kind of the wild card thing, and I can't take credit for this. My friend Michael Weiner mentioned this, but it's absolutely true. The next time you hear Philip Rivers interviewed, close your eyes. He sounds exactly like Wright Thompson. He could be Wright Thompson's voice double. Not just the not just like the timber of his voice. The words he chooses, the the, the the sort of the rhythm of his talking, they, they they have the same voice. I remember that's a great observation. I remember in like 2008 or 2009, I wrote a column, I think during the playoffs where I did awards, and one of the awards was about Phil Rivers dropping f bombs, um, and being caught on camera, and all of these Chargers fans came out of the woodwork just furious at me because Philip Rivers doesn't swear. And he's like devoutly well, religious. He, and they were like, he, he would never, you owe him an apology. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, you owe him an yeah. apology. So the next week I did, I, I wrote about how they were all mad at me. And I was like, well, maybe he didn't. And, and then the retraction wasn't good enough. And I was like, wow, these people are fucking crazy. Um, but I remember that. And I remember he used to get mad about the Philip versus Phil thing. He didn't want to be, he doesn't want to be Phil. He wants to be Philip. And, uh, and I would call him Phil. And, um, I think it, I think the chargers reached out to me at one point about that. It's Philip, not Phil. I was like, really? So I like calling him oh, Phil Rivers. Luckily now. you didn't, luckily you didn't have a, uh, like, uh, like a Chris Everett, uh, Jim Rome situation. I know maybe, well, here's the thing I'm with you. He's, he's, he's probably my favorite non-patriot other than Saquon Barkley, even though he cost me money last week. I love the fact that he just keeps having kids. I think it's hilarious. Like he's clearly just I like, fuck it. Awesome yeah. I don't know anybody yeah, who has nine like- kids other than like a reality star. He's, he's really, really, really competitive and hard on everybody during these games in a way that, you know, Marino is like this too, where for a few years, like, wow, that guy's an asshole. 
And then after you get used to it, you're like, ah, I kind of like this guy. And now he's like your grouchy uncle who's just, he's mad at everybody, but he's happy. But the thing that really jumped out to me is, and I talked about this with Sal on the podcast the other day, is it, for the first time over the last couple of weeks, I started thinking like, this guy could be like another Tony Romo if he decides to do TV. Because he's got the right Thompson voice. He's really likable. I feel like he'd say anything. And Here's a great example. Okay. After the Chiefs game, he's being interviewed on the sideline right away. You know, like, right. And of course, because he sounds so much like Ray Thompson, now I watch every interview I can see of him talking. So he's being interviewed directly after the game. And he's saying, he says something along the lines of, check this on YouTube. He's like, well, you know. We played pretty well. We were we stuck with them. We had more first downs than they did. And I was like, why is he keeping track of that? <laughs> like, I, I I can understand a guy on the field keeping track of his own numbers, but why in his mind is he keeping track of overall first downs for each team? Yeah. It's a completely useless statistic anyways. It would be like if he memorized the amount of time of possession was happening in the game or something. But he just and he said it casually, so it wasn't like he was real proud of himself for knowing this. Um, I well, do wonder if he does have because you know we're watching the Monday night game now. Like uh, I, now, I always hate criticizing guys because it's like you know yeah. they, I couldn't do any better. But you know, like, do you think that part of the reason Jason Witten was hired was because they were like, well, he's Romo's friend. Maybe he's like, maybe he'll be like Romo. I kind of feel like that, like that Romo's. Uh, uh, relationship to him convince people that like maybe he'll be able to predict play. Maybe he'll be one of these guys who knows everything. And um, it, I, it, the, the, this is the guy. It never made Not sense. To, it will never made sense because he wasn't a great interview. I always feel like, I don't think this stuff's hard. If the guy's a good interview, then the chances that he's going to be good in a broadcast booth for me exponentially increased. This was always the reason anybody who followed Barkley in the nineties was like, wow, when that guy retires, he's going to be an amazing TV guy. So Phil Rivers was not a good interview, but Marino was not a good interview and became a pretty good studio analyst. Romo was not as charismatic as an interview as he is as an announcer. I would did not anticipate that he would be that much. I got to say though, I don't know if what, I I did listen. I've been wrong a million times. I did predict the Romo thing on this podcast just because we had dinner with him once, and he was so outgoing and gregarious, and and uh, had so many tidbits. It was like, wow, if they ever channel this in a booth, that would be amazing. I never, I can't imagine anyone had that experience with Jason Witten. Like, oh man, if he ever can can explain what it's like to be a tight end in the broadcast booth, people are going to go nuts. It's so funny when, because Gonzalez does this too, these these specialty positions like tight end, where basically you're either blocking or you're running a pass pattern. And it's really not that complicated, but they feel like they have so much expertise. And then the, then they'll gear the whole broadcast around. Like, I want you to watch what Kelsey does right here. He, he gets the block. He jumps off that guy. And then what? Perfect little route here. It's like, yeah, he's a tight end. That's what they're supposed to do. Do we really need to break this down? We don't see running backs do that. Like, watch Saquon Barkley. Watch what. But for some reason, the tight end, they feel like they have to elaborate on every fucking thing with those guys. I don't know. It's annoying. Well, I think it is more complicated than you think, but... I I think the failure that somebody like Witten makes is kind of an unwillingness to 
transfer the knowledge you have into sort of contemporary normal language. It's yeah. almost as though he feels as though he'll be respected more or they'll take him more seriously if, you know, you know, it's like there's a kind of guy, a kind of analyst who will never say weak side linebacker. He has to say the will linebacker. He has to say that. Yeah. He wants people to know that he's using the language that they use in a film session. And uh, it, 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 it doesn't improve the experience, you know. You're either, it's one of those things you're either good at it or not. Like Nate Burleson did a game last weekend and I, I don't think he'd ever done a football game, at least an NFL game before. He's fucking, who are you talking about? Nate Burleson. He's fucking awesome. He, okay. he did it. He did the Jets oh, Texans game. He was just great. Anyway, I felt like I, they were able, they had him and Mariucci. I forget who the play by play guy was. And that I felt like I was hanging out with them, but they were telling me stuff, which is I think the hardest place to get to. And I think that's why people love, Romo and Nance, or at least some people, um, because you kind of feel like you're hanging out with Romo watching the game with them. It's a really hard place to get to. Collinsworth um, was able to get there, I think, to some degree. He's 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 got some yeah, tricks now, the, but the, the the dream setup now would be Michaels and Romo. That would be the, that would be the ultimate pairing for the booth. I mean, Collinsworth has been the best for many years, and I think he's great. You know, I just. Um, but it would be, I think that the guys who are good analysts, it really seems like it is the first five or six years that they do it. And, and, and that's really when they're peaking. And, and, and Romo is still in that uh, kind of window because during that point, they still have all this knowledge from guys they know in the league. Well, that, that's the you thing. Know, they, they and that's why relationships, you know? that's the danger of the TNT show, which is the greatest show of all time is Barkley's been out of the league 20 years now. And Kenny's been out of the league, I think, 22 years. And Shaq's been out of the league eight years. And at some point, you know, when when everybody in the set has never played against anybody, I still want to hear from somebody who can tell me what it's like to try to stay in front of Giannis when he does that two-step thing or whatever, <laughs> but you know? Barkley has, the adva- Barkley has the advantage of never having to be right about it. <laughs> right. Well, people just love Barkley. He, like he just, there's, there's no expectation with Barkley that the things he's saying is in any way accurate. It's, there's still some of that with Kenny Smith that, that, that we do sort of assume Kenny Smith has to offer uh, accurate analysis. Um, and Shaq is, I don't, he's more of a, uh, he has not been as good in that role as I think. Uh, he's still likable though. Considering the pedigree. No, he's, he's fine. He's yeah, fine. He's, not he's, bad. he's not bad. I think Shaq's Shaq's post post career, I think, has been really intriguing because he's somebody who seems like he's more popular now than he was five years ago. And I think part of it is social media. He's on the TNT show. He's done really smart commercials. He just seems like a good hang. He's done a nice job of uh, whatever you kind of need to do after your career that he has formed the second life. And it's hard, you know? And I, I think what you're saying about, you basically have the four or five years after you play where you have all this advantage of all this inside Intel and info that you have. But then after that, it's really personality and hard work. You know, like I look at somebody like Jalen, Jalen's been out of the league 12 years now, but still puts in the work and can, can fight off the fact that he hasn't played. But, you know, then you have somebody like Vince Carter, who is going to be a broadcast free agent next year, probably. And if you've heard on the podcast, like he's great. And, um, 
is somebody that is clearly going to be on television and has 20 years of playing against all of these guys, you know, recently retired, new guys. He's been on teams with guys. It's, it's just an army of information. It's going to be an advantage. I want Phil Rivers to did do TV happen, though. Did you happen to watch? Oh, go ahead. What? I just said, I, I want Phil Rivers to do TV after he retires. I just hope that he doesn't. Did you? It doesn't keep having kids and decide that he just needs to drive people around to soccer practices. Well, I mean, he's just going to have. Just imagine in 10, 15 years how great his life is going to be at like Christmas when all his kids come home and some of them are married and they start having kids. I mean, he's just going to have a dream life. I'm really envious of him. Um, did you happen to see the. Uh, do you ever watch uh, a football life on the NFL network? I do. I DVR them and I pick and choose, which I like the LT one. I thought was really good. Sometimes I'll skip them, Did but I like the them. Troy Aikman one. No. Okay. There's an interesting thing about the Troy Aikman one. Just mentioning these guys who are broadcasters. When he was in high school, football was the second best thing Troy Aikman was at as a skill. What do you think he was better at than football? Golf. Nope. Guess again. Baseball? Take one more guess. Archery? Typing. What? He like won all these state titles for typing. He went, he says he took typing because his friend was like, wanted to meet girls or whatever in the typing class. And he became this world-class typer. <laughs> oh and they my would God. Have typing competitions and he would dominate. Hey, we, uh, we're, we're hitting the final bell here. You wanted to quickly mention you love the Clinton affair in A&E. You're the third person yeah, in my life. I, I, it's one of my Christmas break. I'm plowing through it. Juliet, who, uh, one of our, one of our, uh, ringer OGs also loved the Clinton affair. And one other person told me about it too. What's weird. There's a lot of Clinton oh. content right now, but this seems to be the one to watch. Right. Well, okay. This is definitely the one to watch. Okay. There's here, here are the reasons why you got to watch the Clinton affair. Okay. First of all, the level of self-awareness by Monica Lewinsky is incredible. I mean, it's just, I know that she has sort of been moving in this direction uh, kind of consistently. You know, when I wrote that book, uh, I Wear the Black Hat, I talk about Monica Lewinsky in that book and Clinton and the whole situation and Star Report. And at the time, it was like she was still kind of this unknown vessel. Like We didn't know much of what she's like. Since that time, she's just sort of become more and more of a public person. And her description of these events um, is just real insightful, okay? Yeah. Paula Jones comes across incredibly credible and just and, and, and so unlike the way she was framed at the time. And, I, you know, this just shows my own biases. I never thought of, of sort of um, the idea of her being anything outside of the way she was sort of presented in the media. Ken Starr in this documentary is pretty good. I mean, it's like he, uh, there's no, you know, it's one of those things where you only see the person talking, you don't hear the question. So you could say to someone, it was like, why wasn't he ever asked these three specific questions or whatever? But he seems much more competent than I thought he was. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of had, you know, some, some kind of real insight. But the biggest thing, the reason you will like it, is I couldn't believe how fun it was to see the old news footage from that time. Like, I, you know, I was working in a newspaper when that all happened, and of course it was everyone's life. But I, I, I guess 
it would be, you know, whenever whenever I talk about things from the past, I'm always hesitant to say, like, this is nostalgic because I think that somehow weakens yeah. the, the, the compliment or whatever. But this was the best kind of nostalgia. Just seeing that footage, seeing just seeing a lot of the people who are still in the public sphere now. Yeah. Uh, but back then, and uh, I, I it was five episodes. I wish it was 20. I wish it just never stopped. I just want to keep wow. watching. I what a review! Going. It was so. It, well, it was. It was. I. I just. I, I. I started doing this thing where I would only watch ten or fifteen minutes at a time because I knew I was going to run out. So God. I would just like watch ten or fifteen minutes and then just think about the fifteen minutes I watched for a day. That sounds watch like it the next part. It sounds like Kyle with a pack of cigarettes in the airport. It's milking it. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, I would recommend since you're here. The Dominic Dunn documentary that my mom, shout out to my mom, alerted me to on Amazon that uh, I thought was really good. And I, and he was, I thought one of the most enjoyable writers of the nineties in the magazines, just with the OJ coverage. Is that new? Because I watched one on him a bunch of years ago. It's a new one. It's, I think it's new. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And it's got a lot of footage of him and it's about Phil Spector and all the kind of the uh, different trials that he got involved with. And I recommend that one as well. All right. We never got to the rock and roll hall of fame. We could talk about that next time. What do you, what do you got to plug for the holidays? Anything? Well, if anybody wants to go back and buy my old books, and give them as Christmas presents. That would be a brilliant idea. Great. Let's do that. There's lots of old books you had. What was that thing you, <laughs> you Instagrammed like a, like a bar menu of all your oh, book titles. What was that? Yeah. Well, this is this bizarre thing. It's like, so I'm on Facebook and um, I should actually, I'm glad you brought this up because I should mention this, this hotel. So I'm on Facebook and somebody just puts this on my page. Somebody who, I don't know if I'm, if I'm friends with them and I just don't know. Cause I, I just kind of, I, when I joined Facebook, I just sort of agreed to anybody, but there's this place yeah. called, <laughs> um, okay. It is the Penny Royal Bar in the Kimpton Hotel in Seattle. Wow. For some crazy reason, the guy, his name, or I shouldn't say the guy, the person who made up the menu is named all the drinks after my books. It's like the apex of my career. I never put things it's on amazing. Instagram. I know. I like, this is a, this is a. The, the fact that you put it on Instagram, I, th- I knew it was a big deal for you. What was your, just out of curiosity, what did you think the best drink was? Like that, the best match well, of drink know, to a book title. I, uh, the kind of drinker I am, I honestly don't recognize a lot of these ingredients. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what Cronin Swedish punch, I don't know what that is, or like a St. George spice pear. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. I guess, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I guess I have no answer to that, but I drink them all if they gave it to me because I'm real flattered they did it. That's a real cool thing. Now, I suppose I'm going to find out later that the reason this guy did this, it's like some next level way to mock me or something. I have no <laughs> idea. But whoever whoever did it, I appreciate it. Even if your motives were to make fun of me, it's very cool that this happened. Because, you know, I think it's any writer's dream to have their work associated with alcoholism. You know, because that's such a key part of being a writer. That, you know, is, is real flattering. I, uh, I'm really impressed. I think it was 100% not to mock you. I think he was a huge fan and I think you have to go to that bar. It's like a three hour drive. I got to go over I there totally and you got to meet the person. If I'm, if I'm in, if I'm in Seattle, 
first of all, I'm 100% staying in this hotel if I'm ever there. Probably yeah. the whole chain of hotels. And, um, and I'm definitely going to this bar. But, you know, um, uh, it, it, uh, I guess I could take the train up. Yeah, I go to the train and take the train back. Real uh loaded but you know well congratulations Anyways, I appreciate it unknown person at the bar at the uh what was it again the uh, the Kenton. penny royal bar in, in kenton yeah. all right chuck klosterman always a pleasure happy holidays my friend all right thanks to ZipRecruiter. don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash bs thanks to the rewatchables con air is up right now thanks to the ringer the ringer podcast network thanks to the new york times mini crossword if you're looking for something smart to do while you're waiting for your latte sitting in the trainer snacking in the break room play the New York Times mini crossword. The mini puzzle can be solved in about two minutes for a fun, stimulating way to spend your downtime. Challenge yourself. Enjoy wordplay every day. Download the New York Times crossword app at nytimes.com slash mini. We'll be back Thursday with one more pod. Until then. <laughs>